This is episode 143 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Cell Fate Decisions at Single Cell Resolution with Dr. Bertie Gotkins. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Speaking of which, we want to know who you want to hear. If you know a stem cell researcher doing cool research who would make a great guest, send us your suggestions at info at stemcellpodcast.com or reach out to us on Twitter at stemcellpodcast. Today we have a great, great guest, Dr. Bertie Gotkins, who's from the Cambridge Stem Cell Institute. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on how transcription factor networks control normal and malignant leukemic blood stem cells also going to talk about his groundbreaking paper that mapped mouse grass gastrulation and early organogenesis. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming up. But before we get to that, Stem Cell Technologies knows that as a researcher, culturing cells, it may seem ordinary, you know, ordinary cells. They all look alike, right? But your stem cells are anything but ordinary. Celebrate the art of stem cell biology by picking your favorite image among a collection of selfies from fellow researchers. Selfies, you know, this is the millennial generation and researchers out there are making little selfies. That's C-E-L-L fees, by the way. Stem selfies. To cast your vote, like your top choices on the Stem Cell Technologies Facebook page. Voting ends July 1. Now on to the roundup. We're starting in neural. There's this age-old debate. It's been reinvigorated. You know, it's pretty well established that adult hippocampal neurogenesis declines with age. Yep, yep. There's a decline. It's unfortunate, but we all know that. You know, we're not getting smarter as we get older, at least past about 18. And there's also this general consensus, in spite of that decline, that hippocampal neurogenesis in the human brain persists throughout adulthood. So yeah, your, your neurogenesis is declining, but it's still going. It's petering along, right? But there was this recent study by Sorrells et al. that blew up the field, suggesting that adult hippocampal neurogenesis is non-existent beyond adolescence. I mean, I know a few post-adolescents that I would say that's probably true for them. But... That goes against a lot of the kind of renewed dogma. The renewed dogma now is that neurogenesis is popping all the way through adulthood. Nevertheless, this Sorrell's et al. story, it reignited debate in the field. And I mean, frankly, because it was like a target. Uh, this result, it was in stark contrast to all these recent studies that have been coming out. We talked about a few of them on, on the show in recent weeks. Uh, but, you know, when they came out of that, everybody went after it. All right, and amongst them was Orly Lazaroff, okay, who is at Chicago. Um, and the goal for Orly Lazaroff and the group there was to demonstrate that uh, adult hippocampal neurogenesis is still hot and popping. And they, they showed it. They showed it. What was unique about this, you know, all these studies are limited. Human brain is tough. It's not accessible. But I think the unique angle here is they... You know, 18 patients, not a crazy amount of patients, but the mean age of these patients was 90 years old. Uh, and they, they show they show that uh, this hippocampal neurogenesis is present from the 8th to the 10th decade of life. It's even present in people with mild cognitive impairments or Alzheimer's disease. So even when you have these neurodegenerative conditions or impairments, your neurogenesis is still live. But it was interesting because there's, there's a, a decline in the number of neuroblasts in people with uh, mild cognitive impairments. And uh, if you had a higher number of neuroblasts, it correlated with improved global cognitive scores and an overall better clinical diagnosis. So, I mean, it's pretty cool. I think, you know, this is a very circumscribed question here that was uh, the impetus behind that was this real... I think, controversial study from Sorrell's, but another 
you know, nail in that coffin. I think they're really driving home the point here. But uh, the, the novelty also here, I think, derives from that kind of direct relationship that they show. If you got, um, you know, when you have less neuroblasts, it correlates with mild cognitive impairments and, and Alzheimer's disease. Um, and the extent of your cognitive status is kind of associated with the neuroblasts. If you have more, you have good cognitive status. So let's keep those neuroblasts going. I'm hoping that my neuroblasts last into my 60s. That's all I care about. I'll take it. All right? Just hang on, fellas. Um, you know, in the brain, we're moving to the next story here, but it's, very, it's a good segue. It's a good segue. Because we got to understand why, why, why as we get older does the neurogenesis decline? Why? You know? The structure, the function, everything, it all deteriorates as we get older. It's pathetic. And we get these cognitive impairments, we get these neurodegenerative disorders, but the way that aging directly leads to these manifestations is not well understood. Okay, but there, there's a, it's been noted that there's this increased uh, activation of microglia, you know, this act, it's called the neuroinflammation, they like to call it. This ac increased activation of the microglia. And of course, as we just noted, a loss of stem cell numbers and activity in the hippocampus, okay, which is, you know, one of the major neurogenic regions of the brain, as we just, we just said. Um, so here's the other thing. There's this other story that shows that factors in the blood or plasma from young mice or humans, it can increase the brain function in the hippocampus in like older mice. You take the young mice blood, you put it in the, in the brain, in the old mice, increases brain function. We actually talked about it on this show. We've talked about it all. We've been on the air forever over here. And of course, conversely, if you take young mice and you put some old, gross, well, not gross, but it's, you know, old blood, it's old. All it's used by date is way long gone. You put that in a young mouse and they, they, they get all beat up. Reduce neurogenesis, reduce cognitive function, hippocampus, no good. All right, so why? Why? Tony Weiss Corre, who's at uh, Stanford University, Tony and his group, they hypothesized that it had to do with the brain endothelium, of course. The blood, the first thing the blood's going to see is the endothelium. And the, the brain endothelial cells uniquely make up this tight junction blood-brain barrier, right? It's the first interface between the circulation and the brain. Um, so they're looking at the blood endothelium. They say, is this blood endothelium maybe the root cause here? Um, and, and, and what they found is that in, in older mice, the brain endothelial cells in the hippocampus, they had an inflammatory transcriptional profile. They're expressing all these transcri tra uh, inflammatory factors. Um, among them, uh, vascular cell adhesion molecule 1, which is known to facilitate the vascular immune cell interaction. Okay, And because... That there is such increased transcription of this VCAM1 in the brain endothelial cells. Of course, you had an increase in the soluble form of VCAM that was shed. You know, you get the shed VCAM, and that's then prominently increased in the, in the serum or plasma of older mice and humans. If you look older humans, you also see increased shed VCAM circulating around the plasma. Not only that, but if you take the plasma from an older mouse or human and then you put it into young mice, it causes the young mouse brain endothelium to upregulate VCAM1. So there's this feed-forward mechanism. And get this, if you block that, so you administer an anti-VCAM1 antibody, or if you just get rid of VCAM altogether by knocking it out in mice, of course, in the in the brain endothelial cells, you can neutralize the detrimental effect of adding the old blood. Okay, so that feed-forward mechanism by adding the shed VCAM neutralized if you block the VCAM activity with an antibody or by knocking it out. All right, and not only that, it reverses all those detrimental aging effects, including that neuroinflammation and the cognitive de deficit. So, hey, this is pretty high profile in terms of so the Nature Medicine article, 
uh, I think it's a high profile in terms of, it, you know, understanding this has always been a mystery, this kind of, it's, there's this, all this vi- vampiric element of it. You have old people, I mean, collecting the blood of young babies in order to live forever. Yeah, yeah, we get that narrative, but like, it's all, it's had that more the narrative appeal and the mechanism has been elusive, but it seems now like VCAM could be the key. And once we understand that as a target, you know, understand the mechanism, it prevents a really good target. So maybe we could treat age-related neurodegeneration or cognitive impairment by putting a little VCAM antibody. Hey, seems easy, but of course it's probably not. We'll see what shakes out of that. But that might get my cognitive impairment delayed to like 70, in which case I'm going to have a party tonight with at least uh, at least two glasses of wine. It's Friday on the day of recording, people. Don't judge me. All right, now we're going into the blood. We're in the blood already, so let's stay in the blood. We're talking about how the blood, that old, ragged blood, no good, new blood, yay. All right? But if you want to get new blood, the key is you got to master the hematopoietic stem cell. I've talked about it a lot, a lot. I love talking about hematopoietic stem cells and the blood, etc. Can't get enough. But like, it's it's important. It's the key. Um, and in this case, maybe it's the key to keeping your blood young, and keep your mind young. The blood, the key to everything. Well, there's this you know thing that's known about hematopoiesis and hemogenesis, primary hemogenesis. All right, everyone wants to know. How do we get this cell? But if you want to understand how do we get hematopoietic stem cells or keep them as hematopoietic stem cells, it's important to understand where do they come from in the first place. And uh, Wnt has a lot to do with that, okay? Wnt signaling. The bad news is Wnt signaling has a lot to do with everything. Everybody in science knows that Wnt does everything in the specificity of like one Wnt versus in the cognate receptor and the activity of that in a specific cellular compartment. It's not really well understood. Okay, um, that's it's broad. Wnt does everything, and it does a little bit of this and a little bit of that in this system. So it's hard to put your finger on Wnt. But that said, there's this amazingly specific requirement for Wnt 9A. This one specific Wnt is absolutely necessary to direct the early amplification of hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells. And this is strange because just this one Wnt, you know, Wnt's are thought to be, there's a lot of like functional redundancy and promiscuity. You know, if you have one Wnt doing a thing, there's another Wnt out there that could probably do it, you know, half as well or better. But in this case, Wnt 9A is, is it. Without Wnt 9A, you just get, you know, you don't get at all this primary anapoiesis um, or hemogenesis. So, the question is, like, why? And understanding that mechanism could be a, a major insight into understanding hematopoiesis in general, hemogenesis, and maybe hematopoietic stem cell maintenance. So Carl Willert and David Traver, who were, you know, key to understanding that specificity of Wnt9A in the first place. They're at uh, UCSD, by the way. They uh, tried to, you know, delve deeper into seeing what exactly is the, is the mechanism whereby Wnt9A confers this absolutely necessary effect. And they did this by looking in, in zebrafish and human embryonic stem cells, They're doing a lot of biochem, a lot of cell biology and cell culture. They showed that WINCE9A signals specifically through frizzled 9B. And that, by way of beta-catenin effectors, has a, has a effect on you know, activates wind signaling and regulates hematopoietic stem progenitor cell emergence, okay? So it's frizzled 9B that is the receptor. It's the cognate receptor of wind 9A in this case. And they go on to show that there's this cofactor, epidermal gro- growth factor receptor, EGFR, that is required for this wind 9A frizzled 9B interaction signaling. And the way it does that is by phosphorylating a single tyrosine residue on the frizzled 9B receptor in response to Wnt9A. So Wnt9A activates frizzled 9B. That creates a permissive environment for the EGFR to phosphorylate this one tyrosine residue, and that leads us to internalization and signal transduction. All right, so yeah, this is deep mechanism basic. It's a Nature Cell Biology article, of course, for that reason. But I think it's important for the stem cell field broadly because it's the first kind of inkling of the full signaling mechanism of this Wnt9A. How is the signal internalized is key 
because you know we can't just dump Win9A on the system. We got to understand maybe how to short circuit or how to control the signaling pharmacologically, perhaps if we're going to target it for any kind of therapeutic or regenerative purpose. So there you go, Willard and Traver showed up, solved that problem. Now they can, uh, you know, go back to the beach. Oh boy, I wish I was in San Diego. I mean, it's spring in New York, but it's something about being in San Diego, specifically La Jolla, where you're just, you know, macking out all year round. It's like you're on spring break. Love it. All right, we're going to go on now because, you know, the blood needs to find a home. And where is that home? There's a lot of extramedullary hematopoiesis, but primarily we talk about the niche, the bone marrow as the hematopoietic stem cell niche. All right, everybody, it's very well established. And, you know, the, the, it's like the, the prime example of a niche. Um, uh, it's been rigorously dissected, but it's not exactly, well, it's, it's understood to a large degree, but not completely. Um, it's known that there's like a lot of different cell types in the niche. Okay, I can say that much definitively. There's a critical role of, you know, there's non-hematopoietic cells. There's stromal cells in particular have been highlighted as a, a major mediator of hematopoietic stem cell maintenance in the bone marrow niche. Um, and, you know, these stromal cells are mesenchymal stem cells. They're, they're uh, cells of that type are found in most tissues. Um, and so their kind of diversity and lineage relationships are not well understood. In the bone marrow, they're usually located in the, the perivascular space and identified by expression of leptin receptor, um, nestin, or NG2. And we've talked about this with Frenette. We've covered papers on Ionis Iphantis. And, you know, this this classic, classic methodology for understanding the bone marrow niche. And add to that, there's these mice, these leptin cree mice and nestin cree mice that specifically identify these these niche cells. But, like, they're, they're not ideal. There's a discrepancy between the express, expression of those genes, the leptin and the nestin reporters, and the actual... Uh, endogenous locus, activity endogenous locus. So this, this aren't necessarily a, a mere readout of what's going on at the molecular level in these cells. So they're imperfect. And that's not even to mention the other niche components like bone marrow endothelial cells or there's these other osteoblastic, osteolineage cells. So yeah, there have been a lot of studies. There have been a lot of studies. And we, we've talked, we talked about, I mean, we've reported them in the roundup. A lot of studies similar to this one, but nevertheless, a, a comprehensive analysis of the bone marrow stromal cells is, is yet to be um, put out there. All right, so here we've got uh, Aviv Regev from the Broad at MIT and Harvard, and we got David Scadden, the master vampire, um, just because he loves the blood. He's not a bad dude or anything. He's, a ma he's like me, except much better higher achieving. Um, but he's been doing these blood stories forever and ever. He's at the Harvard, Harvard Stem Cell Institute. And here, these two fellas and their, their, their colleagues, they use single cell seek. Here we go. Single cell seek story. God, we had got all the way to the fourth story before we got a single cell seek story. They uh, did a, a census. I like how they call it that. A comprehensive census of the bone marrow stroma. And effectively, what they found is a lot of different cell clusters in there. 17 stromal subsets, um, including these, they have these new fibroblastic and osteoblastic subpopulations that they identified. Uh, and this is all by virtue of the fact that like these were the cells that express the goodies that are important for hematopoietic stem progenitor cell self-renewal and differentiation. So they were fingered as the, you know, essential characters. And, and also they looked in the context of emerging um, AML, acute myeloid leukemia, and this, I think, was really interesting. Because let's be honest, we talked about a, a previous story, I remember, at Ionis's lab at NYU, where he did single-cell seek of the, of the bone marrow, comprehensive. So this isn't like the only single-cell seek story out there, the bone marrow and the stroma and the, and the niche components. But here's where I think it gets interesting, is that they looked in emerging AML. They showed that there was a, a, an aberrant um, 
differentiation of the mesenchymal stromal cells, stem cells to osteogenic lineages, um, and 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 that the the effect on differentiation reduced the expression of those regulatory molecules that normally contribute to steady state hematopoiesis. So this is cool because not only does it give it this comprehensive census, um, but it also is, I think, the first that I'm aware of study to show that there's like a crosstalk here um, in the emergence of cancer that undermines the stromal elements. So undermining these stromal elements that creates a permissive environment or maybe even be causative to the emergence or, or uh, proliferation, uh, expansion, metastasis of cancer. So I think it's a cool story in that, uh, I mean, it's nice. It's a great resource, but uh, also uh, interesting insight there, I think, into the niche environment, the context of cancer. So the master vampire has done it again. It's probably going to... Um, solve a lot of a lot of issues following from that and just an understanding having that as a resource there's a million ways you can go for that uh specifically i think his major focus is trying to create the niche in order to expand hematopoietic stem cells ex vivo create an infinite supply of blood so that he never has to you know take anybody out again he'll have as much blood as he wants in the fridge okay i'm just joking he's not actually a vampire moving on to the heart we're going to finish with the heart. It's an exosome story, which I think is, is, is unique. Um, it has multiple angles, okay? Uh, it's coming out of uh, Prashanth Vallabhajosula and Sunjay Kaushal, uh, who are at the University of Maryland and University of Pennsylvania. And... Their goal here was to try and understand what goes on with these uh, progenitor cell delivery to the heart. Okay, so a little background. There's these encouraging phase one clinical trials. I'm putting encouraging in quotes because the heart is kind of radioactive right now. Maybe we'll come back to that in a sec. But um, these trials using either the cardiac progenitor cells, which were defined as like CKIT positive cells, or cardiosphere-derived cells, which are growing ex vivo and culture, and then you put them back in the patient. There have been encouraging um, results using these CPCs or CDCs as the cardiosphere-derived cells uh, with, in patients with ischemic heart disease. But the, the problem is you put these cells in, you have no idea what goes on. You have no idea if they're engrafting or... Uh, what they're doing or how long they're staying in there, what they're doing during this essential, like this remodeling phase when they're, they're the acute phase where they're the most active. Um, and like a lot of studies, I think we're kind of like, well, how are they conferring a benefit when they're not there? They're not engrafting. And so a, a lot of that was attributed to the paracrine effect. There's this idea. Um, we talked about this a little bit with Willie Mays in the context of stroke. Maybe you guys should listen to that episode because it's real. Just injecting cells, in this case, in that case, it was mesenchymal stem cells, but the paracrine effect is huge. Um, and, and similarly in the heart, a lot of, a lot of the, the, the leaders in the field thought the paracrine effect was, was a measurable benefit. Um, but like the factors that were being secreted, not well known. Not well known, okay? Not well understood. But there is recovery, okay? Mechanism, not well understood. But one idea is, is, is exosomes, okay? So exosomes are these like little microvesicle things that contain all kinds of things. They contain microRNAs or proteins or even DNA, RNA. Um, and the, there's a lot of you know, evidence that exosomes are biologically active, and especially in the context of like cell therapy or transplant therapy, it's interesting, get this circulating tissue-specific exosomes from transplanted solid organs, they've been observed in the, the recipient's plasma. So when you put an organ in somebody, there's, they're pumping out exosomes. Those are measurable in the plasma, and I think that's big. It's, it gives you a readout of the thing you put in is then you know giving you some biomarker in the serum. So 
what they do here, Prasant and Sanjay, they they hypothesize that the, if you implanted stem progenitor cells, in this case either the CPCs or the CDCs, that there would be an exosome signal there that was released in the peripheral circulation, and that would give you a kind of window, a non-invasive window, so you could surveil the activity, a presence of uh, the transplanted cells. So they looked into this. They they transfer. They took human uh, CPCs or CDCs. They transplanted them into a rat model of myocardial infarction. And what they found is that the uh, the cardiac progenitor cells. Okay, so they had a, a better biological effect. They outperformed the cardiosphere-derived cells in in vivo regenerative assays. Um, And specifically, they could identify and purify the the exosomes um, in the plasma of these mice, okay? They They were there. So the progenitor cells were spitting out exosomes that were measurable in the rat's plasma. Um, and the the way they sh- they also correlated a, a superior effect of the cardiac progenitors over the cardiosphere derived cells, showing that the cardiac progenitors also had about twofold level a week after injection of the progenitors. They had a twofold um, increase in exosome derived from cardiac progenitor cells. So they kind of link the increased presence of exosomes to the improved uh, outcome or the improved biological efficacy of these cells, um, which is, I think, a, a little bit thin, but they they also go on. I mean, it's not that uh, I'm not doing it justice. They go on to try and make these mechanistic links, you know, showing what is it in these exosomes in the cardiac progenitors that may be linked to outcomes. They use this whole kind of like bioinformatic, you know, analysis that I didn't quite understand pathway analysis to try and link the what it was in those exosomes that was leading to an improved effect in the cardiac progenitor cells and they come up with a bunch of candidates um which i don't know i'll say one thing i did mere 199a remember last episode we talked about we're mere 199a which they inject into pig hearts had an amazing biological effect before the heart exploded um MIR-199A wasn't in the mix with these, so I, I would have liked to have seen that. But nevertheless, I think it's, it's if nothing else, you know, cardiac progenitors versus cardiac-derived, you know, cardiospheres, that's the cardiosphere-derived cells. I'll be honest, I think that that whole effort is kind of radioactive now. There's a recent retraction. It's been brewing for years. Massive fraud in the field of CPCs. It's not to say that CPCs don't exist or don't work. But a lot of the foundational science underlying it has been shown to be fraudulent. So good show for these guys for making a valiant effort and showing a positive effect. I think the best thing to come out of this is to show that you have a biomarker of progenitor cells. So like you have a way, a non-invasive way to, to or minimally invasive way at least, way to, 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 in, to, to understand the activity of uh, your cells. You'll get a readout to see how long they're acting and to what degree. So... It's a pretty good story in a radioactive field. Kudos to you guys. And that does it for the roundup. We've, we've ended in the heart. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you, if, if you're out there trying to make specific cell types of any type, you know, we took it top to bottom today. We were a lot in the blood, but we got into the heart. We were in the brain. If you want to make some tissues yourself, you got to get into the stem cell field. You got to get some pluripotent cells. And if you want to take your human pluripotent stem cell cultures further with Mteaser Plus from Stem Cell Technologies, then you ought to, because that's the means to an end, you know. It's the most widely published medium for feeder-free human ES and IPS cell maintenance. It's now formulated for enhanced performance and versatility. Mteaser Plus reduces medium acidosis for more stable cultures all weekend long to learn more. Visit www.stemcell.com slash M-T-E-S-R-P-L-U-S. That's www.stemcell.com slash M-T-E-S-R plus. You got to keep your eye on stem cell technologies, you know. They're always refining their recipes. So the M-T-E-S-R you had yesterday might not be the M-T-E-S-R you could get tomorrow. Have a look. It might, might do your 
do a little benefit to your cultures. Have a look. Have a look. We're going to get on to the interview right now. All right, guys. Today on the show, we have Professor Bertie Gotkins, who's a professor of molecular hematology at Cambridge Stem Cell Institute. The Gotkins Lab uses both experimental and computational approaches to study how transcription factor networks control the function of normal and malignant blood stem cells and how mutations that perturb such networks cause leukemia. He's also the current president of the International Society for Experimental Hematology. Mr. President, thank you for being on the show. You're welcome. You're very welcome. <laughs> Why don't you start by uh, giving us a little brief overview of your research focus over there in the lab? Okay, so um, in the lab, we, we're interested in a very fundamental question, which is how cells make decisions, which I think is a very pervasive question in the whole stem cell field, because that's one of the cool things about stem cells, that they have choices. So we're interested in this uh, decision-making, and in particular, how transcription factors play a role in those decision-making processes. So the transcription factors, they are important to reset gene expression programs from one type to another type. And that's obviously inherently linked to if a cell becomes a different type of cell because it needs to turn off certain genes, turn on certain genes. So that's the fundamental question we're interested in. And the system that we use is um, the blood system. And in the blood system, we're interested in how it develops in the first place in the embryo, and then also how it's maintained in the adult organism. And we also are interested in perturbations of the blood system, in particular perturbations that are the precursor stages to leukemia. And for all of these um, sort of different stages of um, blood research, um, as I said, the main focus then is how um, self-aid decision-making processes are controlled by transcriptional networks. All right, let's start with the pathological focus there. I know, you, you know you're a huge hitter in, in basic science as well, but just let's start in the clinic. What, what, we're talking about leukemia here, and of course everybody knows leukemia. They hear leukemia mm -hmm. and they think, you know, kids and, and childhood cancer, and it's, a lot of people get it, and et cetera. But could you give us a kind of a, a more granular view? What, what are the statistics on leukemia uh, relative to other cancers in terms of mortality, prevalence, etc.? Um, so the, the leukemia I know the most about is acute myeloid leukemia, and the reason for that is um, that it's most clear-cut in acute myeloid leukemia that it arises when um, something goes wrong in blood stem cells, and our research focus in, is on blood stem cells. So acute myeloid leukemia in the UK, there's about 2,500 to 3,000 new patients diagnosed with the disease every year. So I would say in the US, it's probably approximately eight times that many. Um, and the survival statistics are not good, um, especially because the disease is on the increase. And the disease is on the increase because it's more prevalent um, the older people get. And as populations age, the disease um, therefore also becomes more prevalent. And in the elderly, the five-year survival rate is below 15%. So it's really low. Wow. And and so just, you know, speaking of stem cells, as a stem cell show here, most of the time when people talk about stem cells, they're thinking of like regenerative approaches. And of course, I know the original stem cell that we use clinically is a bone marrow stem cell, hematopoietic stem cell that was used to treat, you know, leukemia amongst other cancers. Um, but, you know, I, I think you're, you're kind of beyond bone marrow transplant. Um, and while you, I'm sure you dabble in the hematopoietic stem cells and getting them or understanding how they arise, uh, I think your, or your disease focus is more on the transcription, transcriptional network that underlies leukemiogenesis. Uh, mm -hmm. What is the, how, how do you use that, that understanding? How do you leverage that to treat disease? So it's not something that we do. I mean, theoretically. I mean, what's the, the yes. end goal there clinically? So, so, so basically, you can you can try to do to do. I would say you can try to do two things. You can try to come up with a therapy that um, the leukemia stem cells are particularly sensitive to. So, I mean, most of the therapy therapies essentially are toxic, but you have to find a drug that is less toxic to your normal cells than to your leukemia cells, and that's one way of eradicating the leukemia. And then the other 
paradigm really is to find a drug that would push the leukemia cells to differentiate away because this is one of the problems that um, normally all of the blood cells except for the blood stem cells they have a limited lifespan and they would basically turn into mature cells and then go away because after two days or 100 days whatever their lifespan is they will be washed out of the system and there there, there, there is a particular leukemia where this is, is in fact the treatment it's differentiation therapy for acute promyelocytic leukemia so I, I would say they are the two options to either find drugs that specifically are specifically toxic to your leukemia cells or to find um, compounds that would um, kick the leukemia cells to behave again like normal cells and just differentiate away. Right, and you, you kind of mentioned that I know, you know, some people hear about leukemia. I know in my field, which is childhood leukemia, or, you know, I work in a field related to that, um, everyone's excited about the tremendous strides that been, have been made uh, in terms of uh, survival and turning that around. Uh, but I think you kind of alluded to the fact that the AML and, and especially in the elderly population, the problem is getting worse. Is it getting worse in terms of diagnosis? Uh, increased, uh, you know, more patients are, are, are getting this thing and we're finding better ways to treat it? Or is it also that the cancers that are arising are, are more difficult to treat? Are they you know, are the tough, tough nut to crack, so to speak. Are we are we getting better with the therapy for this kind of AML? So, um, so, so I think it's it's I, I'm probably not the world's expert on this, but but I would say that um, unless it's what's called therapy-related AML, where somebody might get leukemia because they've had a really toxic treatment for some other disease, um, I think. The most common explanation for getting acute myeloid leukemia would be bad luck, and <laughs> and what I mean by that is that accidentally your cells acquire a mutation that makes them pre-leukemic or then progress to full leukemia, and you can just imagine the older you are, the more time has elapsed during which you could have such accidental bad luck mutations. So, so so I think the increase is is related to, to this. Um, in terms of the therapies, um, what you said about the early childhood leukemia, one reason that there is such a good news story about this is that the children are um, able to um, recover from much harsher treatments than the elderly. So these um, very um, severe chemotherapy, bone marrow transplantation treatments, they are often not available to the elderly patients. And that's one reason why the survival rates are so low. But in the children, they are not without side effects either. And I think it's becoming clear that later in life, there may well be side effects from these very harsh treatments. So even though their life has been saved, there is still, I, I think, room for um, refinement of how the children are treated. So along those lines, I don't want to perseverate too much on this. I know you're not clinically mm. focused. I want to get to the basic. But just, you know, we talk about a lot on this show about everybody's reading about the CAR-T therapy and, and whatnot. Do you think that, that is, is going to revolutionize this particular uh, form of AML in the elderly the way it has in, in the wider population? I think there's a possibility, yes. Um, I would say that... Um, some of the successes that I hear about, I also work a little bit with a car T-cell company. Um, it, it is mind-blowing. What nobody knows at this stage is how long-lasting the effects will be because obviously not enough time has elapsed yet. Um, but but um, it, I think there is a possibility that it will become a treatment option for those elderly patients where... Um, this um, very heavy-duty chemotherapy is not an option. All right. So now we're going to shift gears, talking about, you know, revolutionary technology. You're an early adopter generally. You probably had an iPad pod, or pad for that matter, back in like the 90s when they didn't even exist. Uh, and I say that because you're like the godfather, not the godfather, but you do a lot of single-cell seek, and you've been doing uh -huh. it um, since early so, and obviously, because you, you saw the power of the system early um, and what it could do in terms of deconstructing these complex systems, um, can you tell us about 
that, the power of the system generally, and then we'll get to your specific studies after, but the, the power of the system generally, and then also uh, what are the limitations uh, of single cell seek? Um, yeah, so we got, I, I can maybe start by saying why we actually got into it in the first place. And this was to do with um, the transcription factor networks and the relationships between transcription factors that we were interested in, how the activity of transcription factor A might impact on the activity of transcription factor B. And when it became possible to measure gene expression in single cells robustly, and this I think we started in 2011 um, with single cell PCR at the time, I suddenly thought, wow, now we can now we can measure the level of pairs or groups of transcription factors, not in five replicates, but we can do 500 or we can do 700. So we have this really large number of measurements and therefore have much stronger statistical power to say, oh, when factor A is high, factor B is low, so maybe factor A is repressing factor B. So this is how it all started. And then quite quickly, um, it moved from single cell to RT-PCR, to single cell RNA sequencing. And that, I think, is a complete game changer again, because there are many problems in our field that it can deal with. So um, at, at the very basic level, I said we're interested in how cells make decisions. And I think you have to, you have to accept that this process happens at the scale or level of individual cells. So that really, if if all you ever measure is the averages of pools of hundreds or thousands of cells, there are clear limitations of how what you would be able to learn about how a single cell makes a decision because you're averaging over lots of cells that are different stages of this decision-making process. So, um, so, so I think um, it just opens up, it unlocks this. If you think of biological research operating at different scales of the scale of the molecule, the cell, the tissue, the, uh, the, the person, the population, I think it unlocks this whole working at the scale of the cell in terms of doing deep level molecular measurements or molecular profiling. What we do mostly in my group is single cell RNA sequencing, where you determine the whole transcriptome of single cells. Um, and they are, um, the key things we are finding in the blood field is that we are um, getting a much better understanding of which of the traditional populations that we're dealing with coming from full cytometry, which ones are actually quite homogeneous and which ones are a complete mishmash of different cells because now we have this deep level information. We can also um, we can try and connect single cell biological assays with single cell molecular profiles. I think it's a very powerful way of then making predictions to say if a cell behaves like this is because it expresses gene X. And again, as I said, we in stem cell research, we have been doing single cell biological assays forever. A um, methyl cellulose culture assay is a single cell assay because it reads out what a single cell did 10 days ago. Was it a colony forming, did it have colony forming at potential 10 days ago, yes or no? So you get that information at single cell level. Now we can connect it to molecular information about these cells. In other biological contexts that are less well understood, um, completely new cell types have been discovered. For example, in the lung, a cell type has been discovered that wasn't known before, which expresses much higher levels than any other cell in the lung of the cystic fibrosis receptor protein making people think that maybe we have looked at the wrong cell for people who have cystic fibrosis. So, so I think it's, it's very exciting times. In terms of limitations, I would say it's amazing that it works in the first place because there's very little material that you're trying to actually get robust measurements from. Um, at the moment, most of the protocols that people use, they allow you to detect about 10% of the molecules of mRNA that are in a cell, which tells you that if a given gene is expressed at 10, or on average, 10 mRNAs per single cell or less, basically you are really in the noise zone, whether you can detect this or not. And what's important to know is that, let's say, an average copy number of 20 mRNA molecules per cell is not particularly lowly expressed. 50 is already fairly highly expressed. So this 
cutoff of 10 molecules, I think it affects probably about 40% or so of the genes that one would want to look at in a perfect world. So we are left with the other 60%. But that's a lot more than 10 fax markers. <laughs> right. And the, uh, I mean, I was just thinking as you're, you're talking about the, the power of the system and how you can, you know, get a picture of these single cells and, and uh, specifically how, like you said, this is stem cell biology is about single cells. Um, and hematopoiesis in particular, I think the great quest has been to put your finger on the stem cell, the hematopoietic stem cell that's been very elusive. And uh, I wonder, do you think that the single cell seek data that's come out to date um, has kind of indicated that we're talking about a kind of meta state? Or I guess the better question, is there a hematopoietic stem cell? We know it exists, but I picture it as kind of like Schrodinger's cat. Like, can you observe it and use it therapeutically at the same time? Is there a specific identity that you can point towards on that plot in the single cell seek plot of all those cells and say that's the stem cell? Or is it more of like a meta state? Um, it's, I, I think we can't yet provide a definitive answer to it. Um, what, um, what, what, I, what I think is quite clear is that at the end of the day, um, we have in the blood field, we have a very useful functional assay, which is transplantation, particularly in the mouse. I think it's very robust. So, so it means that um, we should um, not kind of go soft on this because we actually have a very reliable functional assay and whether something is a stem cell or not it should be validated with this assay um, so I think um, the state of the field is nowadays that and, and what's important is that this assay works at single cell resolution a single mouse stem cell can be transplanted from one mouse to another mouse and establish a whole blood system and the efficiency of this is 50 percent and what i mean by efficiency that the let's say the purity the purity of a population that scientists can purify now is about 50 percent um, but when we look with our molecular profiling methods into that pot of cells if we look at a hundred of those cells there isn't um, a split down the middle to say, oh, those 50 look the same and those 50, they look completely different. Therefore, those 50 are the stem cells. Um, and I think it's probably for two reasons. Firstly, because um, uh, why should it be such a clear cut thing? Because because um, maybe there's, it's, a, it's to some extent a gradual process of how cells lose the stem cell stemness of 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 this this um this ability to read out in this in this assay um in and and the other problem i think is that we can't be quite sure that we are measuring the right things so in the rna sequencing we are measuring basically all of the genes in the transcriptome or the 50 percent of the ones that we can robustly measure but if 90% of those genes are actually unrelated to whether or not the cell will function as a stem cell. They are still going to give us variability in that pot of cells. Um, and that variability gives any computer program that's trying to identify subgroups of cells, it gives it something to deal with. And therefore, it uses that variability to kind of pull the cells apart into what people now call a cloud or whatever. Um, but it's not clear that that's actually related to the stemness of the cells. Mm. Um, so, so, so yeah. So, and 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 then there are obviously other things that we are not measuring. I think in 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 many ways, um, the um, the epigenome will be quite important because the epigenome, in a sense, you can think about it. It it tells you what a cell is able to do in the future, to some extent at least, because. If you can see that whole portions of the genome are completely locked down, then you would say, well, this cell is unlikely to be able to turn into cell type X because that part of the of our genetic program is completely shut down. Whereas if you have another cell where you see, oh, it's kind of it's not expressing 
the B cell, myeloid T cell program, but it's got nice accessibility of that part of the genome already. Then, then, it, then that epigenetic or epigenomic uh, measurement would be potentially more informative than a transcriptomic measurement of the stem cell, which tells you in the here and now where it might be in the cell cycle, rather than how good it will be in what makes a stem cell a stem cell, which is to make all of the other cell types. Got it, got it. I see. So, I mean, I'm listening to you, and I'm, I'm getting a little peek into your brain. I know you're an early adopter. Are you telling me that we're going to have single-cell chip-seek around the corner? Is that the next big tech? Uh, the uh, what's become what's become a reality in the last couple of months um, a reality for um, labs that are set up to do single cell genomics is to measure the open chromatin in single cells using single cell ATAC seq. Um, the technology has been developed in the sort of tech labs for two or three years, but now. There are commercial implementations of this, um, where it then really becomes much more usable for an average lab which has the right equipment. So, I would say single cell open chromatin is a reality. People are actually working on single cell transcription factor chip seek, um, which sounds like mind blowing, but um, but I think I, I, and it will be it will be much more bespoke. What I mean is it will require you to really want to know about this particular transcription factor because you'll have to engineer the genome to make it detectable, etc. But it will become a possibility. Wow. All right. So getting to your work, how you've applied this, you know, you've clearly with your roots being in blood and your focus being in blood, you've done a lot of single cell assay in, in the blood. But uh, your most recent story, one of your most recent high profile stories uh, was on the gastrula stage embryo. Let me ask you, is this because in order to really understand the d definitive or the roots of definitive hematopoiesis, you have to go back to the gastrula? Or are you just the guy, you know, there's some gastrulas there sitting around and you say, hey, let's do some seek on it. Um, no. So um, <laughs> the, the, the motivation, uh, I think, is... Uh, there are a couple of motivating points here. So, firstly, when we go back to what I said we are fundamentally interested in, which is how cells make decisions, uh, this is a super cool time point to look at because um, within a period of 48 hours, a mouse embryo develops from having cells that are pluripotent. So these are cells that can give rise to anything in in any tissue in, in the mouse body to having a heart that can beat, it has um, red blood cell precursors floating around, it has neural cells, so if you think about decision making, a whole lot has gone on in those 48 hours about cells dividing and deciding should be should we be muscle, heart, blood, blood vessels, etc. Um, but then, for me specifically, you can go from pluripotent to blood cells. Now, the, the blood cells that are generated in this first wave of hemopoiesis are not the precursors of blood stem cells. And in that sense, I think historically, in the blood field, maybe some people would not have been so interested in it because one of the holy grails would have been, we want to make blood stem cells from pluripotent stem cells in tissue culture, so let's learn how the embryo does it. You will not learn that from the work that I'm doing. But the work that I'm doing takes you to the point where the yolk sac makes um, a whole variety of blood cells. And these are primitive red blood cells, but also megakaryocytes involved in blood clotting and also various types of white blood cells. And what's become um, really very clear in just the last five years or so is that those yolk sac blood cells are a lot more interesting for adult human life than people ever thought. And that is because many of them stick around. So there's this whole idea of what's called tissue-resident macrophages that are, um, are generated in this early yolk sac phase, but they stick around for the lifetime of the organism. And one of the most um, uh, famous one of those tissue-resident macrophages are the microglia cells in the brain. So they are the direct descendants of these early cells that are made in the yolk sac. And the microglia, I think, is really um, 
a very hot setup at the moment, and that's because it's becoming increasingly clear that maybe it's microglia that one should go after for um, all the um, degenerative diseases of the nervous system, like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Um, so um, there, there's a multitude of reasons. But like I said, it's the big question of self-fake decisions, and actually within 48 hours you can go from pluripotent to blood cells. And are you, I, I mean, I guess using that as a springboard moving deeper into, into organogenesis or is that become cumbersome when there's so many cells in the embryo, it's just unwieldy for, I mean, I know everyone uh, talks about the single cell seek. They say we profiled 45,000, 200,000 cells, but like we're talking about millions and millions of cells when you're getting to that stage. Is that feasible, plausible? Um, so at the moment, I think it's not uh, affordable financially. Mm. Um, so um, with our last paper, there was a companion paper in the same issue of the journal where a group from Seattle or two groups from Seattle, they followed mouse embryos to day 13.5. And in their paper, they profiled 2 million single cells in total. And um, actually have a super cool method of doing this very efficiently. but the sequencing that they then did on those single cells is very, very shallow because otherwise nobody could afford it. So mm -hmm. I think we would be waiting for another drop in sequencing costs. I, I would say that there's also another issue, which maybe I should have said already early on when you asked what are the limitations of all of this. And I think one of the limitations is that a bottleneck very rapidly is becoming our ability to analyze all the data that we generate to even have enough people who are trained in the way that they know how to how to analyze this. So for now, I'm quite happy sticking with the time point that we've um, studied the embryos to, which is uh, day 8.5, which is when uh, the embryo is about uh, is a bit more than 100,000 cells in total. And that can be that can be measured. I should also say um, there is a consortium in Cambridge that is tackling this whole gastrulation uh, program and um, that is another reason then for me to be part of this endeavor and um, my own kind of emphasis then is to go from pluripotency to uh, blood cells. I guess it all comes down to the numbers. Too much money, too much data, but uh, I guess we're tackling the issue. Get, uh, sticking with the numbers, this is a bit of an aside, but I was looking at uh, your own you know, history, your education, saw that you went to Oxford and Cambridge. Well, you're currently at Cambridge, been there for years. And just looking at those two universities and comparing them, Oxford founded 1096, 1096, I guess you call it, Cambridge 1209. All right, so you didn't win there. But the, the, the endowment, 12 billion at Cambridge, 6 billion at Oxford. All right, Nobel Prize winners, 118 at Cambridge, 69 at Oxford. But the Times Higher Education World University ranking places Oxford number one, Cambridge number two. You've been in both places. Tell me, in a steel cage match, who wins, Cambridge or Oxford? Um... For for my own research, I am happy to be in Cambridge right now. So I would I, I think I'm I'm happier to be in Cambridge than if I was in Oxford. But uh, they are both really they are both really great places. So um, yeah, well, I, number also one. Also, the rankings I think are based in part on student experience, and um, yeah, maybe it's more fun for young kids in Oxford right now. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, number one and number two, you could do a lot worse. But seriously, what, what, what do you think distinguishes generally? I mean, having spent most, most I know you came out of Germany, but most of your career spent in uh, the UK. What do you think uh, distinguishes sciences in, in the UK? Any ideas there? Is it people wearing ascots or is it the history? Is it... The, the tradition, can you, you have any ideas? Um, I think the, there is a long tradition. Um, I think the way that uh, funding is allocated is on the whole really good in that the people who sit on committees that make those decisions, they're really trying to do the right thing. And I think that encourages then a meritocratic system where um, 
you're really encouraged to produce good science and not encouraged to do networking and politicking to get on. So, 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 I, so, so I think it's also uh, very internationalist in its outlook. Um, a lot of my colleagues are from either North America or other parts of Europe or Asia, Australia. So, so, so I think there, there, there are many contributing factors. Um, lastly, but maybe the most important factor is that once you have a good reputation, it is really easier to attract good people to work with you. And I would say that for any person running a lab, the, maybe the biggest factor in whether or not you can be successful is whether you can hire really good people that work with you. <laughs> and do you think a, a good reputation is dictated pretty much by publishing in the highest profile journals? Um, Worked for you, I guess. Yeah. For probably currently, yes. I, I, I think there's a direct connection. I think you also have, as a, as a group leader, you have to travel a bit and um, put yourself out there and present the work at conferences, etc. Et but then also I think that helps, that visibility that you gain also then helps you when you send a manuscript for review that reviewers would say, oh yeah, I, I've heard this work and I actually quite liked it. So let's, let, let's look at it in a positive kind of frame of mind. So uh, yeah, somehow I think um, we evaluate each other and the um, w what we think about journals, I think, matters mm. somehow. Mm. Yes, well, of course it does. And I, I mean, it makes sense. Um, journals, they, they have the highest profile studies, y yours included. Uh, this is a good segue now that you're giving advice. Uh, I'd like to ask you a couple maybe science peripheral questions. The first one is, uh, what non-science book are you reading right now that is awesome that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I'm reading a book that I'm enjoying, and it's uh, called Period Pieces, and it's by, it's an autobiography of the childhood of um, the granddaughter of Charles Darwin, a lady called Gwen Ravra. And for me, it's very interesting because, uh, uh, first, it's very short chapters, so I can read a chapter and then just put it aside because they, they stand on their own. But she lived in Cambridge, her childhood, in the 1890s. And um, the family, obviously, is very interesting that she describes with Charles Darwin as her grandfather and the son of Charles Darwin, that her, her dad, he was also a professor at the university. Also, just to read how different, in some ways, the city was 120 years ago, but also what is still the same. Mm. So, um, so I'm enjoying that book. Another notable alumnus of Cambridge, is that correct, Charles Darwin? Uh, that is correct, yeah. But of course. All right, moving on, we got some fill in the blanks, a series of four here. The first one is, the biggest thing in stem cell field right now is? I think it's, um, for me, to do with clonal hemopoiesis or the evolution of stem cell clones during the lifetime of an individual, not just in a blood system. Mm, that's a good one. Yes, I guess we're, we're appreciating nowadays that uh, your hematopoietic system as an adult is very different than the one you were born with, correct? Yeah. Um, and yeah, for a lot of reasons, many of them pathological, a lot of risk there. Number two, I would never have gotten to this point in my career without... My family. Hmm. Good answer, of course. Third, when it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. Immunology. <laughs> it's a very bad thing to say. But um, <laughs> I was just going to say that maybe we shouldn't go live with that answer. <laughs> oh, it's just the, it, it, it's, the, the jargon in the field is just very hard. And uh, there's a serious point to this. Um, that the fields of hematology and immunology they should overlap at at the sort at the level of that there should be much much more exchange between the individuals that work in hematology and immunology than there is because at the end of the day we all work with blood cells mm. but there isn't because we all, we speak our hematology language and they speak their immunology language and um, well yeah. we need an interlocutor for that we got to cross the aisle last question if the lab catches fire and i have a chance to grab one thing on my way out it's 
You'd probably be my laptop. <laughs> Come on, man. It's on the cloud now, Bertie. <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I have the same inclination. You know, that this horrible thing that happened with the plane crash. You, uh, you heard about people who were grabbing their, their luggage out before they got off the plane. And I was thinking, you know, the same thing. You have these instinctual things that, you know, it's just reflex. My laptop is always the first thing I think of when I get out of the car. When I get off the plane, when I get home, it's always, where's my laptop? Where's my laptop? So I'm with you on that, Bertie. Um, thanks a million for uh, being a guest on the show today. We learned a lot, and, uh, you know, we look forward to talking to you again. Okay, thank you very much. All right, Bertie Gotkins, my man. That was a great talk. You know, I threw him a few curveballs. He took them very stoically, and uh, I appreciate his good humor. We're just trying to have a good time. And we learned a lot. You know, Bertie gives a unique insight into this whole field, the single cell seek. Uh, he, he was one of the forerunners there. So we were glad to talk to him. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter, guys, at www.stemcellpodcast.com. You can get the show notes there, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us, you know, on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast, or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com. There you can give us feedback. You can suggest guests. There's a lot of stuff you can do there. You should check it out. Thanks, guys, so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. It's getting warm out there. You know, life is good. Get out of the lab for five minutes. Put some earbuds in your ears. Listen to some past episodes. Go walk around. Get your mind stirring. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your stem cells. Enjoy the show. We'll see you in a couple weeks.